On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Thomas Williams about John Dunn's SCOTUS. So we cover topics like just who is SCOTUS? What did he think? So what were his thoughts on volunteerism, on university, on simplicity? How did he really relate to those like Thomas Aquinas or others in the medieval period? And much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and conventional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that hopes to develop habits of thinking that are centered around particular virtues of charity, curiosity, uh, cheerful confessionalism, and critical thinking. And today, I am really stoked to introduce you all to Dr. Thomas Williams, who I think is going to help us think about the medieval period. We've had a couple of episodes recently on various aspects of medieval theology, and I think, at least in my corner of what is broadly considered evangelicalism. I think Thomas Aquinas has seen somewhat of a renaissance, but there have been others that seem to not be getting the publicity that I think they should. And one of those is John Dunn Scotus. So I texted my friend Ross Inman and said, who do you think are the premier experts on Dunn Scotus? And he said, Richard Cross and Thomas Williams. And we just had an episode with Richard Cross recently, and I was like, well, then we've got to get Thomas Williams. And here, here he is so kind to join us to talk about SCOTUS and all the fun things that go, go with that. So I'm really looking forward to this. Dr. Williams, for those who aren't familiar with you, give us a little bit of background about who you are, and then tell us what is it that got you interested in studying and writing and thinking about SCOTUS? Well, first of all, it's good to know that I'm in such uh, august company. That's a nice thing to hear. I uh, work in medieval Latin philosophy. I did my PhD at Notre Dame in 1994 with a dissertation on SCOTUS. And I have published on SCOTUS on Anselm a fair bit, did a translation of SCOTUS's ethics, a recent translation of Augustine's confessions, which I'm very proud of as well. Uh, So I work a lot in sort of ethics, philosophy, religion kind of topics, and also theories of the atonement. So that's what I've most, mostly focused on. As far as I, how I got interested in SCOTUS, it was, well, I think maybe a lot of us in medieval have a story of getting nudged in a providential direction by Eleanor Stump. Uh, and in my case, I was sort of fishing around for a dissertation topic. I've never been good at coming up with topics. And uh, she said, well, you know, a lot of people have done work on this topic, but they haven't really looked at SCOTUS. Why don't don't you do that? Okay, well, Eleanor has never steered me wrong. So uh, I did, and it ended up being fascinating. And SCOTUS took over my life for a few years. And uh, yeah, that's how it happened. Cool. Well, I guess we can jump right in. Um, Why don't we start with just who SCOTUS is, maybe some biographical information, anything that you think the listeners would be interested in learning about his life, and then we'll kind of walk through some of his thinking after that. We don't know nearly as much about SCOTUS's life as we do about some of of the other medieval thinkers, but we do know a little bit. He was born uh, in the town of Duns, which, so that's both his family name and a a place name, uh, which is just over... uh, from the English border, it's maybe 10 miles uh, into Scotland, and um, was 
given to the Franciscans pretty early, educated in you know, with the Franciscans in the north of England, then went to Oxford, where he studied and then taught, and uh, became a, very prominent in the Franciscan order, and as often happens, uh, sort of moved around a, a little bit uh, as, as one of the budding stars. Uh, so ends up at the University of Paris uh, sometime in the late 1290s, where that was really, that was the theology department in Europe at the time. So everybody who was anybody at all had to be at Paris uh, for a while. So he uh, studied further at Paris, then lectured there. Late in his life was, was transferred to the Franciscan school in Cologne, uh, where he died uh, in 1308. So it's a, a short life, as a result of which he led, led, he left a lot of his material in various stages of editing. So he was still working on revising um, a lot of his works, and that project was left unfinished. So his text came down to us in a kind of disorderly fashion. And when I was in graduate school, uh, the critical edition hadn't proceeded very far. Um, we're, in a, we're in much better shape now. Uh, we've, we've got better editions. We, we know more about the layers of revision and so forth. Uh, and I think now the greatest difficulty is getting that material out uh, to people who are not going to be reading it in the Latin. Yeah, I, I imagine I, I'd love to learn Latin, but <laughs> it would be awesome to have it all in English. Um, and even, I mean, Latinus will tell you, Scotus's Latin is terrible. It's like he didn't, mm. I, I hear him, this is terrible. I hear him with a groundskeeper Willie accent um, from the Simpsons. Um, I'm sure that has no <laughs> relationship to reality, but his Latin, it's like he just was not paying attention in Latin class. Um, and so he, he makes up words and it's, it's, it's really terrible. Um, so I, nobody really likes translating Scotus. Nobody even likes reading him in Latin. Um, I've published a fair bit of translations of Scotus. I really need to do more. I may really be the only living person right now who actually positively enjoys getting Scotus into, into English. Um, and, and I should probably do it as a, as a service to the church. Um, I don't know. Y'all are going to bring me under conviction of the Holy Spirit. Just, <laughs> I just asking you about these things. Well, there's a couple. I, I think there's three big aspects of Scotus that I'm I'm most interested in, and those three are voluntarism, univocity, and simplicity. I think the one I want to start picking your brain on is univocity. You've got a paper. Oh, what's the title? What univos? The doctrine of univocity is true, um, or something along those lines. And I was in a PhD seminar with Greg Welty. And I tried to basically argue for a doctrine of analogy. And I use your paper as kind of a, I'm arguing against this, but I think I've come around to, to your <laughs> position on this. So all that to say, can you sketch out a little bit about what is doctrine of analogy? What is univocity? And, and why is it, do you think SCOTUS is helpful or useful in saying potentially univocity is actually uh, the proper way to think about language and language about God? Sure, there's so much to unpack there. Uh, the title of the paper is one of my favorite paper titles because philosophy paper titles are usually boring. And so it's the doctrine of university is true and salutary. And the salutary part is uh, because there's been, uh, on the part of a number of theologians, uh, this, this polemic against, against university as being not only false, but really damaging to the faith and to the way we think about God. So unpack a little bit of that. The doctrine of univocity is just the, the, the view that 
the language that we use about God is all of a piece with the language that we use about creatures. So that at, at least at some level of analysis, when I say, for example, standard example, Socrates is wise, and I say God is wise, there's got to be some sense of wise in which I can apply that word both to God and to a creature with no change of meaning. There's It applies sort of without remainder, unproblematically to both. And I, I argue in that paper, as, as you know, that um, that we need that view because the, the alternative is, I think, complete unintelligibility. So that we simply do not know what we're saying when we say of God that God is good or that God is just or that God is wise and, and so forth. Now, the doctrine of analogy um, is particularly associated with Thomas Aquinas. So this is an Aquinas versus Scotus issue that continues to be played out. And the fans of analogy tend to be Thomas and, and people who want to retrieve Aquinas. It's a doctrine that's very often poorly expressed. So people will say things like, well, as Aquinas teaches us, we all of our language about God is metaphorical. Absolutely not. That is not Aquinas's view. Um, a metaphorical language about God, it would be something like a mighty fortress is our God, or uh, the Lord is my, my rock and my salvation. Uh, well, the salvation part, that's literal. Uh, the rock part, obviously we know that God is not, you know, is he sedimentary or igneous? We understand that that's a metaphor. But language like God is good, God is just, those are not metaphors, Aquinas says. They are literal predications. But there's some slippage in the meaning or the concept or the application of the term uh, because of the radical difference between God and any creature. Uh, so that God's wisdom and creaturely wisdom have to be irreducibly distinct. And so how, how you work that out um, is going to depend on you know, your particular metaphysics and your particular slant. But for Aquinas, I always find the, the, the way of teaching that works best, best with my students is it's, it's like um, if I were to show you a, a photograph of one of my nieces and, and I hold up the photograph and I say, this is my niece. Well, what, what enables me to, what makes sense of that claim or what makes it true when I say, this is my niece? Well, there's a resemblance relationship. Um, the, the picture is in a way that turns out to be really hard to define and clarify, like my niece, right? It's of my niece. But obviously the picture and my actual physical literal niece uh, are not the same thing. And what I mean when I say this is my niece when I point to the photograph and what I mean when I say this is my niece when I point to the girl, the young lady, you know, um, they're related but but different. And for Aquinas, it's the resemblance relationship between God and creatures that allows us to have literal but still analogical predication. My argument in that paper is that analogy either collapses into univocity at, at some level, or we simply don't know what we're saying when we say about God, that God is good or just or what have you. And, and I'm glad to hear that I might have convinced you. Um, it's always... I don't go into my, for example, into my my classes, my undergraduate classes, especially trying to convince anyone of anything. Um, and I sell analogy really hard when I teach Aquinas. And then I can't wait to get to SCOTUS and sell university really hard and, and see if there are any converts. And uh, they're often hard, which is, which is very gratifying. 
like you said, it seems to collapse into university at some at some point. And I think that was the thing that I kept running into was I was collapsing to needing some univocal core of meaning to have any, I guess, intelligible meaning whatsoever. It seemed that it was the way that I was trying to do analogy needed univocity to make sense of it. So, and my my suspicion is my argument in that paper is that that's going to be true, sort of no matter how you do it. If you think about it in my kind of silly photograph case, um, it, so obviously my niece has two different but related meanings in those two predications, but there's a univocal core, right? The univocal core is well, you can rewrite the one statement as this is a photograph of my niece, and then both statements are literally true. My niece has the same meaning in both. And it's only because you have that univocal core that you can do the the analogical predication as a kind of shorthand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So why do you think it is that so many are almost hell bent on denying univocity as a as a way to understand God and to speak of God? It seems that people want to say if you want to have any version of classical theism whatsoever, you you have to reject univocity and you have to have analogy. Is it just they're equivocating on terminology and they don't really understand what's going on or, or what's, what's going on there. I think, I mean, historically, I think that that's just clearly wrong. I mean, Scotus is a classical theist. He, he holds to university. I've argued that Anselm uh, holds to university, even though he says a couple of things he shouldn't. Um, you can actually make a case and some Thomas are receptive to this, that the dispute here is, is purely verbal um, or at least that you can get university uh, out of, Scotus's kind of university out of Aquinas's kind of analogy, as it were. Um, but I think I think the big resistance is that people think it collapses the distinction between God and creatures. That the God of classical theism is supposed to be wholly other, utter, utterly distinct from creatures. There is no categorization or species or what have you into which both God and creatures fall. And so how can there be terms or concepts that apply without remainder equally to both? And there are two things I want to say to that, one of which I'm very certain about and the other which, well, honestly, I'm very certain about that too, but I haven't had the guts yet to put it into print. So the the one that I have said in print that I can certainly stand behind is university is, is about thought and language. It's not about ontology or metaphysics. So Scotus absolutely agrees that there is no, so to speak, ontological basket into which you can put both God and creatures. Absolutely agrees with that. He just thinks that language can, and indeed must, uh, apply to both in the same way. In part because where do we get our capacity to use language and where do we get the meanings for our terms? Well, from our experience of creatures. So if language and thought derived from creatures don't apply to God, well, that's all the language and thought we have, which means we can't think about God or speak about God. And that is, I mean, that is disastrous. Um, some people don't find that disastrous. There's a lot of, lot of apophaticism about in, in theology. Uh, I'm just deathly allergic to apophaticism in, in any form. Uh, and that may be part of the reason I'm so enthusiastic about Atascotus. Here's the part that I'm sure about, but that I haven't said in print. But I have said at conferences and you know on Facebook and stuff, uh, which is, I don't see how you can really go all in on the view that God is wholly other, and maintain that 
God has fully and without remainder entered human history in the person of Jesus Christ. I just don't see how you can maintain the incarnation uh, in light of this view that God is wholly other. The incarnation is sort of by definition impossible on that view. But we start as Christians, you talk about cheerful confessionalism. Um, I'll go to a theologian of, of my own, uh, well, we're not exactly confessional, um, my, my own church. So I'm an Episcopal priest as well. Uh, and and the, the great uh, one of the great incarnational theologians of my communion, uh, Phillips Brooks, who is Bishop of Massachusetts, best known for having written the uh, the Christmas Carol, A Little Town of Bethlehem, um, expresses. I mean, even in that, even in that hymn, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. It's not sort of metaphysically speaking this unbelievable. Catastrophe! It's God slips into the world He made as if the incarnate. You'd almost expect it that God and humanity are, are brought so near um, that it's it's just the quiet entry of God into the world He made uh, as those He made in His image. Um, so there's my cheerful confessionalism about the incarnation um, <laughs> in uh, talking about Scotus and University. So you have a. Another paper, uh, Reason, Morality, and Voluntarism in Don Scotus, a pseudo-problem dissolved. So maybe uh, for the, the listeners who don't know what voluntarism is, um, define that. Tell us whether Scotus was one. And if there's a problem with that, um, how does he get around that perceived problem? So voluntarism kind of comes in different versions uh, and the kind of baseline version of voluntarism, so from the Latin word for will, voluntas, um, the baseline version is, to maybe oversimplify it uh, beyond recognition, a, a voluntarist is somebody who is, so to speak, heart forward rather than head forward. So someone who emphasizes uh, the heart, the will, affect, emotion, more than or in preference to or before uh, emphasizing intellect, thought, and, and so forth. So Augustine is classically uh, a voluntarist in that sense, that he is, is he, this emphasis on, on the heart and of the will as the, the center of, of human identity and of relationship with God, um, even of the virtues as being different forms of love. That in itself is a, is a kind of voluntarism and would be recognized as such. That's a pretty broad kind of voluntarism. Then, then you get beginning, you know, especially in the, the late 13th century, which is where I spend a lot of my time, um, especially with Franciscans, beginning with sort of the earliest Franciscan thinkers and accelerating uh, what, what people would call psychological voluntarism. Psychological voluntarism has, is a, a number of theses about the relationship between the will and the intellect. So the idea that the ultimate determinant of human behavior is what we choose rather than what we believe, what we will, will rather than what the intellect dictates. That's a view that psychological voluntarists hold. Typically, they will hold that the will remains free to act against the intellect's final judgment so that you can come to the conclusion, X would be the best thing for me to do, but you know, darn it, I'm going to do Y. And for a lot of Franciscans, and maybe, well, come clean about this, for me, it seems perfectly obvious that that happens all the time, right? I, the good that I would, I do not. Uh, the evil that I would not, that I do. I know better. Um, 
but but my will can be turned away, can turn away from even my best judgments. Um, so that's psychological voluntarism. There's no question that SCOTUS is a psychological voluntarism. That's not contentious at all. Is that a bad thing to be? I don't think so. I think it's an obviously true thing to be. But in contemporary discussions about free will, psychological voluntarists are basically a kind of libertarian in the contemporary sense. And libertarianism, of course, has its problems. One of its problems that it's, is that it seems to leave uh, choice or will too much untethered from human nature and from human belief so that choices become at bottom irrational or inexplicable. Now, I actually think that's just right. I, that is, I think that a genuinely free choice is at bottom explainable only by the fact that that's what the creature decided, the human being or the angel. Um, again, that seems that seems right to me, but it's a very contentious point. So there, there's no contention about interpreting Scotus, but there's contention about whether he's onto something good or something bad. Here's where the contentiousness about even interpreting Scotus comes in. I think he was also a further kind of voluntarist, namely a theological voluntarist. And the theological voluntarism in this sense is basically the idea that, that morality, or at least some substantial chunk of morality, is determined by the divine will, and that the divine will is not in turn determined by anything else. So that given human nature as God creates it, given God's own character, given you know, all, all of those facts, it is up to God whether certain things are commanded or prohibited, uh, encouraged or discouraged, what have you. Um, there is a lot of debate about whether Scotus held that view. Basically, I'm the one who says he does. And, and I got a lot of, a lot of pushback um, and sort of made my early career by being super obnoxious about uh, how everybody who had written on this was totally wrong. And, you know, I, have, I alone have lived to tell it, so to speak. Um, there's, there's some repentance that, that had to happen. Right. Um, not about the views. The view is absolutely right, I still think. Um, but I, I was not overly charitable sometimes in expressing it. Why would people resist it? Well, because it's a crazy view. Um, the view is bonkers. And I, don't, I, I think people, look, you never want one of your favorite philosophers to turn out to have a crazy view. And surely it is a crazy view that if God had commanded us not to kill, except like every other Thursday, you get a, a free shot, right? The, the, then that would be the rule. That can't be right, right? That just can't be right. Um, there, there are various ways of, of, of mitigating the, as it were, bonkersness of this. But here, to me, they all run aground on the fact that every time Scotus has a chance to mitigate his views, he passes it up. And he's committed to you know, things like in the in what Christians tend to call the sacrifice of Isaac, but Jews much more sensibly call the binding of Isaac, right? Um, that it was right. It was, it was morally right because God made it morally right for Abraham to do what he did. And if he had not called it off, it would have been morally right for Abraham to go through with it. And how is that? Well, because there's nothing to Scotus says this explicitly. I'm not ventriloquizing him here. He's, he's really saying it. Um, 
there's nothing about Abraham and there's nothing about God and there's nothing about killing and there's nothing about human happiness. There's, there's nothing of any of the available constraints that you would expect that, that makes that, as it were, un, that fundamentally, fundamentally impermissible. Um, there, has, there has been some argument, well, but given human nature, there's a sort of default to the moral law as we know it. But I think even, even there, it's hard to make that case. I mean, why, why are we required to love our parents, uh, but not required to, or to honor our parents, but not required to honor our cousins? Well, because God issued the one commandment and didn't issue the other. Now, the one thing God can't do, uh, basically, is change the fact that is God, God is infinitely worthy of love himself. So God, God can't change the truth value of God is to be loved. And from God is to be loved flow other truths like God is not to be shown dishonor or irreverence. So thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We get that one for free, right? God can't, God can't make it permissible to, to, to show irreverence to him because he can't make himself anything other than the highest good and the, the, the most and indeed infinitely worthy of, of respect and reverence. Can't do that. But kind of everything that doesn't have directly to do with God according to a theological voluntarist, if, and so according to Scotus, if I'm right about him, that is, uh, that's at the divine discretion. That's interesting. I want to spend a good chunk of time on divine simplicity. I, I would have follow-ups on voluntarism, but I, I think that's, you gave a great summary. So I want to transition to simplicity. Uh, Scotus has a little bit different view than somebody like Thomas Aquinas on what divine simplicity means. He seems to allow for if I understand right, what's called a formal distinction. So a, a lot of, I guess, contemporary thinkers don't like form, the formal distinction, whether they think it's a legitimate category or whether they think it's violating divine simplicity. So could you give just a little bit of a summary initially on what it is that SCOTUS thinks and how it differs? And then we can talk about whether it's a viable option for simplicity after that. Sure. I mean, here's perhaps the, the weakest part of uh, the the questions and answers that I was I was preparing myself for because I do have uh, you probably know a, pa- a co-authored paper on divine simplicity but it was my co-author who did all the heavy lifting on that paper and I wrote one section that has to do more with my um, my determination to make you know to show that Scotus is a theological voluntarist and he did he did all that the hard stuff um, so. It might be helpful to, to back up a little bit and talk about why classical theism is committed to simplicity in the first place and what it is, and then we can talk about the formal distinction. Yeah, that's good. That's all right. Um, so divine simplicity is simply the doctrine that God has no parts of any kind. And uh, everybody sort of agrees that, I mean, obviously God doesn't have a body, believing aside the incarnation, right? He does now. Um, and... Mo, you know, people worry nowadays about whether you can make sense of God's being outside of time, but certainly the, the tradition is very clear that God has no temp- temporal parts in addition to having no spatial parts. But there's this further idea that there's there's no metaphysical plurality or fragmentation in God at all. Um, God is really in a very robust sense one, so that there is no distinction between God and God's attributes between one attribute and another. Um, so what's so bad about being metaphysically plural? Um, part of it is this, 
this um, Greek philosophy that was taken over very, very early on. It's not a late importation that um, sees what is one and what is unified as just sort of obviously superior to what is fragmented and multiple. And uh, but, but beyond those those intuitions, there's a, a very clear argument from from God's aseity. So from the fact that that God is utterly independent of everything that is not God. And that is if God is distinct from any of his attributes, then God can't be who or what he is apart from something that is distinct from God himself. And so if God is not God's justice, then God depends on God's justice to be God. And so God uh, depends on something other than himself to be who or what he is in violation of this idea of classical theism, um, and which is a very intuitively powerful idea that in order to be absolutely perfect, God is utterly independent of everything else. Everything else depends on him. He depends on nothing. In order for that to work, then the tradition has argued repeatedly and emphatically um, that God must be utterly without parts of any kind, spatial, temporal, or metaphysical. Um, and you see this very clearly in somebody like Augustine, you see it in Anselm, you see it in Aquinas. But simplicity causes some problems. Uh, it One of the most obvious problems is that we've typically believed that God could have not created. We certainly have typically believed that the, the creatures that God uh, created are free and that if creatures are free, that means that they could at least sometimes do otherwise than they actually do. We also believe that God knows absolutely everything, right? Um, it's part of the divine nature. Turns out on simplicity, it is the divine nature that God knows absolutely everything. Well, but how is that going to work on divine simplicity? Because God's knowledge is just God. But if what God knows could turn out differently, given that God could have not created or that his creatures could have acted otherwise, then God's knowledge could be different. But if God's knowledge could be different, then God could be different. But God's supposed to be a necessary being, not a contingent being. Um, and so it's, it's hard to see how you can get that on simplicity. Maybe not by itself a devastating argument against simplicity, but it gives you a, a sort of a taste for why people worry about it. So along comes SCOTUS. Scotus affirms simplicity. The argument of that paper, though, and I, I do think this is right, is that he kind of, kind of affirms it verbally. But he chips away at it in ways that Anselm and company would view it as, as that's not simplicity. You're, you're calling it simplicity, but that's not what simplicity is. Um, you're going to have austerity worries. You're going to have other worries. That, uh, so... So what's the distinction? What are the, how, how, what's the distinction between, say, God and um, God's knowledge or God and God's justice? Well, it's, it's not what the medievals called a real distinction, Scotus says, because a real distinction for them is when two items are inseparable, or, or sorry, separable, at least by divine power. So when two things are really distinct, they can exist apart from each other, at least by divine power. So the a classic medieval example, um, which I could probably from our confessional backgrounds, none of the three of us would particularly warm to, um, is the is transubstantiation in the Eucharist. So that at least by divine power, a substance can exist apart from its accidents and vice versa. You don't ordinarily get the accidents of 
of um, bread and wine uh, existing apart from the substance. Uh, but in this case, it's possible. That, so we can say they're they're really uh, distinct. Right? That's our our evidence or our clue that they're really distinct. We can't have that obviously between God and His wisdom, because that would be saying that yeah, God and, and God could exist without being wise. At least it would be within God's power to make himself exist without being wise. That's clearly crazy. No real distinction. Simplicity says, yeah, so that's why the only distinction is a conceptual distinction, right? Because of the way our minds work and because of the way we gather our concepts bit by bit and piecemeal, we can think of God without thinking of his wisdom and vice versa. Um, we can think of God as separate from his wisdom. Our language kind of encourages us to do that because we think in these subject predicate ways, right? God is wise, like Thomas Williams is bald. Right? In my case, the baldness is, is not me. I used to have hair. Sounds like the same thing with God. God is wise. Okay. No, that's just, that's a function of our language and our conceptualization. That's only, there's only a conceptual distinction. Skoda says there's got to be more than a conceptual distinction, in part because God's attributes, it's different attributes to make a classical theist wince. God's different attributes play different roles in the economy of salvation. And all of y'all have been saying these things all along. My Southern is apparently, my Scotus is apparently that Southern. Um, I am from Memphis, by the way. That's not an affectation. I realize my accent is all off, but I, I'm entitled to y'all. Um, all of y'all have been saying these things. So, you know, go back to Anselm. Well, God does this through his mercy. He does that through his justice. Well, you're not allowed to say that if there's no distinction at all between God's mercy and God's justice, right? Um, similarly, with, with other possible distinctions, uh, Scotus thinks the same thing, that 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 God's justice and God's mercy play different roles in the economy of salvation. Well, so there's got to be a distinction. Something more than conceptual, but less than real. Okay, I'm going to call that the formal distinction. And what is the formal distinction? Well, it's a distinction between two things that, that are inseparable. But uh, the, dis the distinction is not mind-made, right? As, as a conceptual distinction is. So there is really in God a distinction between, say, justice and mercy, but it's not a real distinction. That's where Scotus sounds like he's just kind of making stuff up. Um, but it, you can see terminologically how it, how it works out. We are not create. it's not a function of the way our language works or the way our mind works only that we speak of divine mercy and divine justice separately. It's There's something in God that grounds divine mercy and grounds what we say about divine mercy and divine justice separately. It's just that they are inseparable from each other in God and united with each other in God. Uh, is that enough to get us started on at least what the formal decision yeah, is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because I do think there has been a desire among some who find the strict identity type claims of Thomas Aquinas when it comes to simplicity hard to swallow. So it seems people are wanting to say, I want to have a version of simplicity, but can I tone it down a little bit? And it seems SCOTUS is uh, a option, at least in the historical witness, who's trying to do that. Yeah. So what's the objections to this, this version and the formal distinction? 
this is where I really wish my co-author were here instead instead of me. Um, basically, I mean, a lot of people just think it doesn't make sense, right? That the distinctions are either sort of there in the world or they're only in the mind. And this idea that um, you you can have a distinction where things are things are inseparable in reality, but also distinct enough that the mind is tracking rather than creating the distinction is a is a sort of false idea. The fact is that SCOTUS puts it to use in lots of places in his metaphysics. And I, mean, I don't find any great difficulty in the idea. It's, so it's, I, I say that to bring up the idea that it's, it's not an ad hoc move. Mm-hmm. The way, for example, a generation later, um, Occam will say, there are no real relational entities. That's what the best philosophy teaches us. Oh, but we got to put them back in to get the Trinity. I mean, philosophy would tell you not to have them. It, it's not an ad hoc move like that to, to save the, your theological doctrine. He uses it everywhere. He, he uses it to talk about the distinction between the soul and its powers. So what's the distinction between my soul and my intellect? Well, my intellect and my soul are inseparable, um, or say my intellect and my will are inseparable. So clearly, and that seems clearly right, but they're both rooted in me. I can't have a soul without either of them. Both of them are united inextricably in my intellect. That's just what the formal distinction is. So it becomes really useful in talking talking about us. It becomes really useful in also in talking about God. Um, so my puzzle earlier about how can God's knowledge uh, perhaps have been different? Maybe, though I don't have the metaphysical chops to work this out myself, maybe the formal distinction will allow us a way to say that because there is a formal distinction between God's nature and God's knowledge. And so it might be that you can save the necessity of God's nature um, while acknowledging the contingency of at least some aspect of God's knowledge, certainly where SCOTUS would want to go with that. Maybe we can zoom out a little bit. We've, we've been talking about a few specific issues here um, and just have you orient um, SCOTUS within, you know, the broader medieval stream of, of thinking. Um, was he during his day, was he uh, well-respected and was he read a lot? And and maybe those, um, those, centuries immediately following his life uh, and his writing, how much impact did he have on the, the thoughts of those uh, that came? And maybe if, if you feel comfortable answering this, did how much impact did he have um, on the thoughts of the reformers since they were, you know, coming along not too long after um, his thought? So, so backing up a little bit from, from Scotus's day. Um, so he's right, writing in the 1290s and, and the first decade of the 14th century there's this, I don't want to exaggerate it as, as people have, but this somewhat pivotal event called the condemnation of 1277. People talk a lot about this. What, what happened was that the Bishop of Paris issued a very disorderly and jumbled uh, list of a whole bunch of stuff that he had heard that faculty at the University of Paris were teaching, that they had to stop teaching uh, because they were regarded as to Aristotelian. So the Aristotle's works had been absorbed, lectured on, received, and so forth. Um, there'd been attempts to kind of, they'd been, a lot of them had been lost to the Latin West for a long time. When they came back in, they came in first uh, through the arts faculty, which would be basically like our general education kind of uh, faculty, because they were the people who were going to be teaching philosophy. And they were all excited about, about Aristotle, and some of them may have got carried away with uh, 
being a little too Aristotelian and not kind of disciplined enough in, in, in Christianity. At least the bishop thought as much. And so he issues this list of, of condemned propositions, some of which had clearly been taught by Thomas Aquinas, even though this was a condemnation of what they were saying in the arts faculty and Aquinas had been in the theology faculty. Um, it's very clear that he was a target of this condemnation. A lot of those uh, condemned theses were uh, along two lines. One, views, views that seem to kind of deny or, or, or limit or truncate the scope of God's power. So there was a very heavy emphasis on a pretty freewheeling view of what divine omnipotence meant. And the other was a condemnation of various theses that were intellectualist, right, as opposed to voluntarist. Um, at least some people argue that Aquinas himself was an intellectualist in his, in his psychology and, and about um, certain topics about, about God. Um, so in the aftermath of the condemnation, it's not as if, right, it's not as if medieval philosophers and theologians were any better behaved than contemporary ones, right? Even if your bishop tells you, you got to stop teaching this, you keep teaching it anyway. And you just say, well, you've sort of misunderstood what I meant. But there was definitely an impetus to a pretty freewheeling view of divine omnipotence and a, a stronger uh, and and more, I guess, uh, maybe elaborate, maybe intense uh, sort of sort of volunteerism being taught. SCOTUS is coming along, so 1277, he's teaching in the 1290s, in the kind of heyday of, uh, of, a, of Franciscans going all out about divine omnipotence and, and being voluntarist and so forth, fighting against the Dominicans largely, who were in many cases maintaining uh, Aquinas' theses, saying, uh, well, the condemnations are based on misapprehensions, or this is not really what Aquinas meant, and all of you Franciscans are misrepresenting him. There are battles back and forth about, you know, the, if you're a Franciscan, you're not even supposed to read Aquinas unless you read him with our list of Franciscan gripes. I mean, this was actually a decision that was that was made. Um, so in that kind of atmosphere, Scotus was a very attractive figure. And since he was clearly um, an incredibly subtle and powerful thinker, known, of course, as the, as the subtle doctor and described as subtle even within, within his own lifetime, um, he had a very powerful influence. Uh, part of that influence was William of Ockham reading him and uh, finding lots of lots of problems with him. Uh, but he nonetheless had enormous respect for Scotus. Um, for long stretches of medieval philosophy, there were more Scotists um, in some in some places and at some times by far more Scotists than there were Thomists or Ockhamists uh, or Albertists. Um, nobody talks about Albertists. So he was he was tremendously influential. There are there are a lot of commentators around Scotus, people who develop Scotus's views. Um, the, there's a, there's a whole sort of Scotist tradition, a lot of which has not been explored adequately, including, I must say, by me. Um, and there's a there's a lot of work that would have to be done by scholars. None of that stuff is in English, uh, or almost none of that stuff is in English, apart from. Occam, of course, who has been pretty well translated. Uh, there's a forthcoming volume of, of Occam's Ethics um, from Cambridge University Press that will that will I think go nicely. It's by Eric Hagedorn, who did a great job with it. It will go nicely with my my volume on Scotus's Ethics from Oxford University Press. So you know, more stuff is becoming available. So Scotus was tremendously influential. It's 
harder for me to say what sort of impact he had on the reformers uh, because the a lot of the literature uh, about the impact on the reformers of of Scotus or Occam or or other later figures to me suffers from these blanket ideas about how uh, you know for example Scotus and Occam were were uh, nominalists and nominalism is a really bad thing and well in a lot of contemporary theological discourse nominalism turns out just to mean stuff I don't like theologically. Um, Scotus, in fact, was not a novelist, and he's very explicitly a realist about universals. Um, Occam was a novelist, but tracing, so why does this view about whether or not there are real natures, right, real essences, how does that get you to rejecting the authority of the Pope, of the Pope or um, teaching sola scriptura or sola fide? That's, that's not a case I've seen made very well. Uh, and since my, as it were, my my theological and spiritual life as a as a part of a church that I won't say had its origin in the Reformation because I'm Anglo-Catholic, um, but was was certainly greatly transformed and for the better by the Reformation, um, is sort of separate from my scholarly life of, as as a pre-Reformation guy. So the the one part of me sort of kind of tapers off in the middle of the 14th century, um, and. I need. I probably need to bring those two things together more effectively than I have. I think you've hinted at it a little bit throughout this, and just um, some of the areas that need work, need research, need study. And I think, at least in my neck of the woods, a lot of Protestants are interested in this broad retrieval or resourcement from this medieval period, um, and finding good conversation partners, finding good resources to. Ha- engage and I guess expand the broadly lowercase c Catholic church. And so I guess this is question is a little bit two part. Number one, where are the most accessible and affordable places to find the works of SCOTUS that are in English? And then number two, what are the areas of his thinking in particular that you think probably deserve the most research now? Um, and is there anyone else in this period that really needs to be retrieved that has just kind of been completely ignored? Let me answer that second question first. And then if I forget the first question, you can remind me of it. Um, I, I've thought a little bit about, about sources. And though here's someone who has not been ignored, who's actually been talked about a lot, but I think is almost never actually read. And that's Anselm. I know you, I know you've, you've I think you've had, or you will have an, an episode of Anselm, but I, I would encourage people you know, before you read what anybody else says about Anselm, including me. I mean, do go ahead and, and read my stuff on Anselm if you want to, but Anselm himself is one of the most lucid, accessible writers in the tradition. And he's been, I can't say well-translated because I'm about to recommend my own translation, um, but he's he's been very accessibly and cheaply translated. Um, so if you go to, to Hackett, there's a volume of Anselm's basic writings, which is my translation, it's got all the essentials. It's about 450 pages. You can go to my website, um, prophthomaswilliams.com, and, and I translate all the rest of the treatises, plus some prayers and meditations and even some letters. And it's all, it's, it amounts to about 600 print pages. And that's everything, right? Except for some of the prayers and, and a chunk of the letters. 
that is to me that is the best way of encountering this this brilliant mind because he just he just didn't write that much and he wrote so lucidly so i would that would be the first place i would go now so scotus the the volume i did uh, for oxford on scotus's ethics it is pretty recent and it's i think it's you know it's been well reviewed and well received and I, that that is a that's a good place if you're but if you're more interested in properly theological topics so i mean there is some there's some theological virtue stuff in there there's some stuff about divine charity and so forth there are theological topics and of course theological voluntarism comes up or or not uh, depending on uh, whether i'm reading those things properly or not right but if you, if if you're interested in stuff like you know, what's the nature of god how does he understand the trinity how does he understand the incarnation, the atonement? Atonement's a you know particular obsession of mine, you know, both as a as a scholar and just as as a believer. Um, then you don't have good sources for that, unfortunately. Um, so there there are bits and pieces. There's an an old volume. It's a little bit out of date now because of the progress in the editions uh, that's available from Hackett by Alan Walter, um, and so that that can that can still be used. Um, he also has some, some, you know, some of the questions on Mary, including Scotus's defense of the Immaculate Conception, and so the, those are those are tend to be in out of the way places. But if you go to Franciscan Institute publications, you can you can find those things. So the, I, I probably just do need to get to work so that so that these <laughs> these things will be more available. <laughs> In English, Occam has been better served by by translators uh, than Scotus. There's a lot of good 13th, 14th, 15th, 15th century stuff that people are just not paying as as much attention to as as they should, including authors that I skip over myself because there's only so much time. And for, for the listeners, um, Dr. Williams just mentioned it, but his his website is profthomaswilliams.com, and he has you know papers on there that you can go check out. Um, so I do encourage everybody to check all that out. But uh, Dr. Williams, I wanted to give you um, a second, if, if you would like to, if you have any, we started to talk about this before we were recording, um, any publications that you have coming up that you think uh, the listeners might be interested in knowing about. I don't know what you can talk about and can't talk about as far as you know book contracts and all that stuff. So um, if you have anything that you think we'd be interested in, let us know. Thanks for that question. I've got uh, an essay on atonement in the forthcoming new edition of the Cambridge Companion to Thomas Aquinas, which I'm really excited about, about being a part of. Um, there are almost no Protestants in that volume. Um, and I, I think I may be sort of just Catholic enough to, to have gotten by with it. But in any event, I'm really pleased that I get to talk about how Aquinas understands the saving work of Christ, because as I say, that is a particular uh, favorite of mine. Uh, the the Very Short Introduction series from Oxford University Press uh, has agreed to do a book on Anselm. I taught them into that, and I'm really excited about that. So that's my project for the summer, and I will have it to the press by September 1st, and I hope then out sometime in 2022. And then the project after that is uh, kind of returning to my roots, which is writing a book on Scotus's ethics. That's also under contract with Oxford. Um, that, will, that will take a little bit more time, probably a year, year and a half from now, um, in which I talk about kind of all my old stuff again from the 90s, which I, I can defend against criticisms that have come up in the 
20 years or so since. And uh, also a bunch of stuff I don't talk about in my earlier work, like like virtue and uh, how practical reasoning works for SCOTUS and basically just any kind of any kind of ethical um, any, anything that would belong to, to ethics is, is going to be in there. I'm really excited about finally doing that. It's only been in the last few years that we've had good Latin editions of, well, sorry, I won't go off on that rant, that we've had good Latin editions, usable Latin editions of SCOTUS's work on, on ethics. And that had, so it's, it's high time that somebody do that work. And so I'm going to do that work. That's awesome, man. This has been really fun. It, do you have anything besides your website? Do you have a Twitter or anything that people can follow you on? I, I do have a Twitter. I haven't really, I don't think I understand how to use Twitter just yet. I got on it <laughs> just uh, because a friend of mine was on it and it's sort of bewildering, but if people want to give it a try, uh, my handle is Williams 67 So capital T, capital W, and 67 is my birth year. So toss Williams 67 uh, and maybe I'll figure out how to use it. Well, this has been really, really fun. So I, I imagine people are going to ask, when are you going to have Dr. Williams back on the show? So hopefully you enjoyed it as much as we did. I've had a great we'll time. To come up. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, we'll have to come up with a, another topic that we, we badger you with. So this has been a lot of fun. I, I encourage everybody to check out his website where all the a lot of the resources are, as well as uh, be on the lookout for these books that will be coming out in due course. We'll make sure to alert you when those come out so that you can get a copy of them for yourself because I know most of our listeners are book junkies and they like to get new books about pretty much everything. And uh, I do got to give a shout out to him. My, my son's here, like putting a shirt over his head, like and, he, and Dr. Williams has kept a straight face this entire time. And stayed focused. So I think he's been extraordinarily well behaved. You have to be really <laughs> proud. Well, thanks. And thanks again for everybody who's been listening. This is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.